There's a story I really like, and it's an old story. Uh, it's about, I'm sure, a much beloved author of yours, the playwright, the Greek playwright Aeschylus in the fifth century BC. You may have read one of his plays in high school, perhaps. But Aeschylus uh, fought in the Persian Wars. Remember maybe the movie 300. Now the Persians keep coming after the Greeks. Greeks, And so he was one of those. Sorry, I went and cheered a football game yesterday. My voice is... Um, so he went and he fought in those Persian Wars over and over again. And uh, when they were invading and trying to subdue Greece. However, something happened and he incurred the displeasure of his countrymen. And they were very angry with him. And so they were so angry that he actually had to run away from a mob, this angry mob that wanted to stone him. And finally, they brought him to trial. And the way the Greeks did it is they have a popular tribunal of citizens. So you have all these citizens, hundreds of his countrymen. And he's at the point of being condemned. And they want his head. And so right at that moment, that critical moment, when it looked like all was lost, and Aeschylus is by himself, surrounded by all these people that are about to give him the thumbs down, Right then, when all was against him, in walks his younger brother. And his younger brother had also fought in the Persian Wars, and in fact, in one of the most crucial ones that defended Athens. And he had distinguished himself as this great war hero. And he was one of those pivotal people that stemmed the tide. And furthermore, he had lost his arm in the fighting. And so he strides into the court, surrounded by all these citizens, and goes and takes his stand next to his older brother. And he just stands there facing the accusers. And he lets drop the mantle, his cape, exposing the stump of his arm. And he just stands there. And he stands there until those who are about to condemn him all relent. And they free him of all charges. And Aeschylus walks vindicated. And his brother had taken his cause. His brother was his advocate. And our culture really prizes advocacy, doesn't it? We hear about it a whole lot. Uh, we're urged to get out and advocate for things we feel strongly about to help shape public policy. We know as a culture that for things to improve or change, people need to step up and have their voices heard. We as a culture know we need advocates. And doesn't it just attest to an underlying fundamental truth about us that we need the true advocate we need him. Our culture even shows it that we need him. We need Christ, our advocate. It brings to light 1 John 2.1 that we just read. My little children, I'm writing to you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Like we have him. And Jesus Christ, the righteous, is your advocate today. That's literally parakletos. It's a very rich word. And so it's variously translated in all of our versions of the Bible that we use. Sometimes it's helper. Sometimes it's companion. Sometimes comforter or strengthener. Or an interesting one, convincer or counselor for the defense. One I prefer is by Leon Morris in his commentary. He's our friend at court. Friend at court. Like Aeschylus' brother. In the Greco-Roman world, you had to have a friend at court. You had to have this friend who'd care for you while you were in prison. Nobody else was. 
who gave you assistance as necessary, and then you pled your cause before the authorities. And that's the advocate. And Jesus does all that. He's your advocate today. You're not alone. You have your advocate. And so notice in 1 John 2, 1, that Jesus is our advocate when we sin. It's not after we sin and after we've cleaned ourselves up and moved past it, but it's in that moment of sin that he's our advocate. And so that quote I read just a moment ago, Christ intercedes for us given our general sinfulness. He's always interceding, but he advocates for us in the case of specific sins. And sometimes we sin big, and that's what Christ's advocacy is for. It's God's way of encouraging us not to throw in the towel and just give up. Yes, we fail, but his advocacy on our behalf speaks louder than our failures. It's when we sin. And so when I think of this, I don't know of any better Old Testament example of an advocate for great sin than our text today. And so if you remember Aaron's priestly clothing as he's symbolized and always interceding for us, that he carries us on his shoulders. You remember, he holds us in his heart and he actually takes our guilt in his head. That's what the priest had to do. That's what was symbolized by the high priest's clothing. And yet with all that, here in our text today, we see Moses actually doing what Aaron's clothing symbolized and doing it at the point of impact, the great sin, such that he becomes, even the further extension of the priest, becomes the advocate for his people. And keep in mind that when we study Moses, we're studying Jesus and Jesus' advocacy for you. So I want to read Exodus 32, starting at verse 7. And it's such a beautiful passage, and I want you to really get it in your working uh, view of how God treats you, even as Exodus 34, 5, and 6 is that working definition of God, full of compassion, mercy, slow to anger, rich in love, not clearing the guilty, that He disciplines us, but in covenantal love. I want you to see all that in this passage today as Moses does this, and this really points to Jesus. Hear God's Word, 32.7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that, I, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why? Does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, 
I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised. I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, they, they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, well, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose for Aaron and let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you. And go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. And the next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron made. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. And this good word and this gospel throughout it, it endures forever. Thanks be to God. So three points. The first point is that Moses pleads sinful Israel's case. The second is that Moses disciplines the people to make them holy. And the third is that Moses offers himself as Israel's substitute. And all of that is his advocacy in the face of great sin. And all of that points to Jesus. 
Moses pleads sinful Israel's case. So Moses is up on the mountain. He's been there close to 40 days and 40 nights. The point of being on the mountain is that God can give Moses the blueprint of the tabernacle, the design of the clothing, and the type of sacrifices in order that God can do what the people want him to do, and that is dwell in their midst. And yet while God and Moses are working for Israel's good, Israel is up to their own business. But Israel is up to becoming impatient and unbelieving. God's not fitting into their timetable. And so Israel gets impatient and they defiantly, blatantly rebel against God. They make their own God and they call it Yahweh. Aaron does this trying to mitigate things, but it just really makes it worse. And they worship it by their own self-indulgence. You see, they want a God, they want a God, but they want one like the nations, one who doesn't tell them what to do, one that can follow the way they want to follow him. And we see the surrounding culture, whether they really realize it or not, it's shaped their view of God and how God is to be followed and worshiped. And we look at that and we say, we would never do something so blatant, so ridiculous as what they do here so quickly when God doesn't fit into our timetable that we would turn and do something like that. And yet we get impatient with God. We too have ways that we assimilate to our culture. It's, it's easier than we care to admit. And so our culture really views God if they view him at all or however they define him. And one of the most popular ways to speak of God these days that I've noticed on TV is the universe wants something. You know, the universe wants this of you. But anyway, whatever way of speaking of God, our, our culture views God as very lenient with sin. And our culture views God as one who satisfies our desires. That's what he's after. And so back in the 70s, Packer and his knowing God dubbed that the celestial Santa Claus view of God, where God's not really holy and sin's not really evil, and God's just a happy, helpful, heavenly being who tries to help when he can, but sometimes he really can't. And that's just the common view of God in our culture. It leads to a host of different effects in our life. And we find it entering into our own disposition too. But the biblical view of God here is way different. Like he's holy here. It's hard for us to really grasp what holiness means, but you see it played out in our passage here. He's both holy and he's loving here. Far more loving than we can imagine. Far more holy than we can comprehend. And so he, he tells Moses on the mountain, Moses, go down for your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And so in that section, we see that God like disassociates himself from his people. They're now Moses's people. They're your people. Whereas prior to that, he's been saying my people and then he says they've turned aside quickly. Like they may think that they've been waiting a long time. It's been a few weeks. But I'm saying they turned aside quickly. It didn't take any time for them to rebel. It's very convicting, really. It just doesn't take any time. And also for the first time, God calls them stiff-necked. And the, the picture is an ox that just doesn't want to take the yoke. Doesn't want to walk down that path and plow the field. And that's what my people are like, or your people, Moses, are like. And then the most 
shocking, difficult thing is that God says to Moses, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So before this, what's Moses going to do? How's Moses going to respond to this? Might he say, well, cool. Uh, They have been a burden. They're so fickle and so complaining. You recall they said, this Moses. I mean, it's very scorning to Moses. Does Moses just say, look, judge them, finish them. Let me have my own nation like he did with Noah. You know, he got his own nation and Abraham got his own nation. I wouldn't mind that. I mean, it must have been somewhat tempting what God offers to Moses. Now, even as we say that, is that what God really wants? Does God want Moses to say, yeah, I want my own nation, finish them? Does God really want to disown his people and destroy his whole plan of salvation? Of course, absolutely not. He is holy and he's loving. God tells all this to Moses in order to test him. It's a test. Right here in the midst of Israel's great sin, he tests Moses. He tests him to see if he will step up and be the right mediator, the reliable advocate. Will he be the man for them? You see, God's the one that told Moses, go down, Moses. God's telling Moses, I want you to be involved with this people in the midst of their sin. Go down. I want you there. And then God says, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. It's a strange phrase. Let me alone, Moses, that my wrath may burn hot. Why does he say this? He's really asking Moses for permission. God's put Moses in the office of mediator, of advocate. Moses, by God's appointment, stands between God and the people. That's why it's right to say your people, Moses. He's the man in the gap. And therefore, the way God has arranged things, in a sense, Moses has to allow God to vent his anger against them. In a way, God's asking permission. Really, behind that, even God is inviting Moses to not let him alone. Moses, are you going to stick with a sinful people? Moses, when they fail miserably, are you going to take their side? Moses, are you going to plead on their behalf? Will you stand in the gap for them? Will you not let me alone? Don't let me alone. And Moses does. He responds correctly. He passes the test. He's the mediator, the advocate for the people. And the most beautiful thing is just the way he immediately goes to God, pleading their cause. Moses implored the Lord as God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? And this whole paragraph, Moses He totally dismisses God's offer like God never made it. And he beseeches God on their behalf. He's the reliable advocate. He pleads their cause in the midst of their great sin. And so he says, Lord, they're your people. He doesn't let God off the hook. 
They're yours. Don't even pretend they're not yours. The whole reason you redeemed them is because back in chapter 4, you said they're my firstborn son. My son, that's why I'm going after them. They're yours. And then he goes on to say, Lord, when you redeemed them, you exerted a ton of effort for them. You counted the cost. You went after them. It took a lot to redeem them. Are you going to do it for nothing? And then he goes on to say, Lord, don't you understand the nations are going to think ill of you? Like you couldn't handle this people. They were too much for you. Or maybe you had evil intent for them the whole time that you wanted to consume in the wilderness. What about your glory, Lord? What about your glory? Then finally, Lord, remember your covenant promises. You made them years ago, centuries ago to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You made an oath. You passed between cut up animals swearing that you would keep that oath. Will you forsake your plan of salvation? Look at those arguments. There are four resounding solid arguments that Moses made. What kind of praying is that? God invited him to do that. To plead for his sinful people like that. And verse 14 shows us the effect of it. Verse 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing upon his people. God relents. You could translate it, repents. He styles himself like us. And he relents and repents of what he said. It's a way of saying that God was really, really angry. But Moses averts his anger. The word can also be translated, be moved to pity, to have compassion. So Moses is prayers for the people awaken God's mercy in the midst of his desire for judgment. And we know that none of this really changes God's eternal plan. God is sovereign over everything. And yet God's sovereignty is a mystery to us. We just don't know how it all works out. God is sovereign over everything. However, he would not have spared Israel here had Moses not prayed for the sinful people here. And Moses prayed 40 days and 40 nights. It was not a passing prayer. Deuteronomy 9 tells us that. He gave himself to praying. God ordains the ends and the means, and that means is prayer here. And it's a history-changing prayer. And you see, he uses your prayers in a similar way. He uses them. He's ordained the end from the beginning, and yet it includes your praying in it. And it's a history-changing prayer prayer as you plead with God in an advocacy way for people like Moses did. And especially this spotlights Jesus for us. And we see that heart of pleading the cause of a sinful people that Jesus has at the right hand of the Father. You see, when the Father looked down and saw us in sin, he said to Jesus, go down, go down, Jesus, and get involved with them. And Jesus went down and got involved with us to the ultimate extent. And he bore our guilt, took it all, then rose to the right hand of God. He pleads our cause on the basis of his shed blood, saying, apply it because they're your people. And you exerted incredible cost to save them. I'm the proof of it. Now apply my blood to their sin and cleanse them and avert your anger. And we see Moses praying 40 days and 40 nights. We see Jesus constantly pleading your cause at the right hand of the Father. 
second point of Jesus' advocacy is that Jesus, or Moses, disciplines the people to make them holy. And in this discipline, he spares them from final judgment. And in this discipline, he corrects them so that they become who they're supposed to be, which is their good. And so there's various things in this section, just thinking of Jesus doing this for us. First, when Moses goes down the mountain, he sees the golden calf and Israel worshiping it, and, and they're dancing and singing. They, the idea is they've thrown off all restraint, meaning any restraint the law would have given them. And there's even a, a sexual connotation in throwing off restraint. They're doing this pagan worship thing. And when Moses beholds them, it says his anger burns hot. Just like he asked God not to have his anger burn hot, and God said it was going to, Moses acts and responds that way. And it shows us that Moses shares God's holiness and he has a passion for God's glory. It's not just a matter of the good cop and the bad cop. He's as passionate for God's glory as God is. The advocate is. And so like God, Moses is righteously indignant at the people's sin. So he takes the two tablets, the Ten Commandments, which is the covenant law, which is what Israel assented to, to enter into covenant with God. And he, and, he, and he looks at them so quickly turning away. He looks at them and just casts those tablets to the ground, just breaks them at the foot of the mountain. He didn't just pitch a fit. That was a symbolic prophetic action saying, you have broken the covenant that you made with God just a few days ago. The blood's not dry yet and you have forsaken him. And then he takes the calf, melts it in the fire, grinds it down to powder, scatters it on the water. There's a stream flowing from the mountain. He takes the water, puts it in some kind of container, and makes the people drink that gold powder they used for their gold idol. And we say, why does he do that? I think that's a good cause for meditation. Like, why does he do that? And several things, I think. One is that idols have to be utterly annihilated, like decimated. To do this, we have to taste their bitterness. Have you tasted the bitterness of your idols? Are they still sweet? Or are they bitter? To do that, we have to treat them like waste or like Paul says, dung. They drink it. To do so, they have to consume their idols, meaning not just root them out, but replace them. And so years ago, old Palmer Robertson preached a mission sermon at First Pres that I was involved in, in Jackson. And he preached on this text. And his conclusion was, that you have to consume the idol. So he said, if money is an idol for you, then root it out. In order to root it out, you have to consume it. You have to use it in a way God wants you to use it. If you're used to spending it on yourself, spend it on God's kingdom. And so after I left church, I was walking to my car and a good friend pulled up next to my car without saying a word. He opened his trunk. He got out a fine set of golf clubs and he handed them to me and drove off. He consumed his idols. He was a guy that had to have three sets of golf clubs, all the best stuff. And he drank the gold dust and gave me his golf clubs. And it was the best sermon application that I'd ever experienced that day. Second, what does Jesus do? Moses confronts Aaron. 
Jesus confronts. We saw that in his earthly ministry. It's part of his advocacy. So Aaron's the high priest. He's the second command. He's a spiritual leader. And the crowd got to him. So Moses asks him, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? And so Moses shows him compassion in confrontation. He says, first, I know how these people are, and I'm sure they pressured you. But Aaron, that's no excuse. You brought this great sin upon them. And both aspects are necessary for Aaron's restoration. However, we look at Aaron and lamentably we see ourselves. He's not ready to repent yet. And so Aaron shows us how not to respond to correction. He shifts the blame to the people. You know the people that they're set on evil. And then he minimizes his role. I just threw the gold ornaments in the fire and it just popped out this golden calf. And my role is minimal in this. But we look at this and we say, when Jesus advocates for us and confronts us, we need to not respond this way. And finally, in this section, Moses calls the people to repentance. And it's a stirring section. He sees the people breaking loose, they're throwing off God's law. It's it's chaos, and the whole nation is complicit. The idea is two million people have gone crazy and rebelled against God, and their enemies are seeing it, and it's just disgraceful. This people that is supposed to be unique in particular and distinct from the nations, wholly set apart to show the true God, that's how they built themselves up, and yet now they have just totally chucked it all and are looking like the most pagan nation of any. And our sins do that. Our sins do that as a church. So Moses stands at the entrance to the camp and calls out, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And it's a gospel call. It's it's a gracious call to salvation, to repentance. It's leave your sin and return to the Lord. I know you're embroiled in this, but you can just leave it and come to me. But, But shockingly, only the Levites come to Moses, his family So Moses gives them the word of the Lord. Go throughout the camp and kill your brother and companion and neighbor. And the Levites do it. And they kill with the sword some 3,000 men. And it must have been shocking to see that. It shocks us. And yet God should have slain with the sword 2 million people. Every one of them deserved it. They should have all been judged. They all signed on to the covenant. They all rejected God in a matter of weeks. Yet God shows kindness in the midst of his severity. He orders the death of a few to save the nation, and likely the Levites execute the ringleaders. And in this way, God disciplines them to restore the nation and preserve his plan of salvation. And so Moses looks at the Levites. He says, today you are ordained to office. Now we're having an ordination service in two weeks. It won't involve this. But Moses looks at them and says, you're set apart to the office. Why are you set apart to the office through this? Spiritually speaking, it's the case for all of us because we're all in office as Christians. It's like what Jesus says, you can't love father and mother, son and daughter more than me. The point is that my love for you is so much more abundant than any other love I have to be first. 
The point is that are, are you repulsed by sin like the Levites were repulsed by sin? Are you willing to exercise God's discipline when it is required? Are you willing to stand against a sinful culture like the Levites were willing to stand against a sinful culture? All of this is, is a call to us about what a people, a holy people is like. And so we find a lot of discipline in this section. There's a disciplinary side to Christ's care over us, and there must be. We see that when we sin great, Jesus, our advocate, moves towards us in compassion right there. We also see when we sin great, Jesus, our advocate, works with us, even causes us pain in order to help us rip up our idols, repent of our sin, and devote ourselves anew to God. And He wouldn't love us if He didn't do this. And so Dane Ortland says this, when a body part has been injured, it requires the pain and labor of physical therapy. But that physical therapy is not punitive. It is intended to bring healing. It is out of care for that limb that physical therapy is assigned. And Jesus is not judging punitively, but He comes to us with corrective discipline to wake us up and bring us back. It's part of his advocacy. Finally, briefly, and, and really most beautifully here, Moses offers himself as Israel's substitute. And so even after that discipline, Moses knows that's not enough to atone for your sin. And so he looks at the people and says, you've sinned a great sin, but per- perhaps, like perhaps, I'm, I'm doubting it because I don't know what that involves, but perhaps I can atone for your sin. It's so serious that it's only a perhaps. I don't know how I'm going to do it. So Moses the advocate pleases their cause. Again, he goes up to the mountain, talks it over with God, and he says, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made themselves gods of gold. Moses makes no excuse. Like, they sinned terribly. I have no argument here. Like, I argued earlier, but I have no argument over this. I don't know how to atone for them. And see, to atone means to cover it over. It means to wash it clean and then to turn God's anger away. Like, I don't know how to do that, Moses says. So he comes up with the only solution he can think of, which is about the most heartwarming solution he could could ever come up with. And he says, but now, if you will forgive their sin, like find it in yourself to forgive them, and, and if not... Please blot me out of your book that you have written. Like, blot me out. Like, if you've got to blot somebody out, don't blot them out. Let me take the heat. Let me take the judgment. I offer some myself in their place. I'll be their substitute. You can pour it out on me. He's saying you can damn me. You can damn me in their place. You can vent your righteous judgment on me. Unload it on me. You can, I'll endure hell that this people could be forgiven. We see in here, in this Moses getting it, like getting what it costs and what is required for a sinful people to be forgiven. That the mediator, the advocate, has to take their place in their great sin. 
And so he says this to God, which is just baffling that he would say that. And God looks at him and says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now what's going on there is because the next verse, God restores them. He's very pleased with what Moses says. That's what he wants Moses to say. That's what the advocate has to do. It's just that as well-intended as Moses is, he's not the right person to do it because Moses himself is a sinner. And we're going to see that in a big way later on in the story. Moses can't take the place of the people in sin because Moses has his own sins to deal with. But Moses' heart points to the one who will take the people's place in their sin. It points to our true advocate, to Jesus, our, the righteous one who doesn't have his own sin, who is our advocate with the Father. And so we see in this Jesus at the cross looking at his Father and saying, blot me out of your book. Blot me out. Which for him isn't just hell, it's break me out of the Trinity. Like eliminate me, erase me, judge me, vent your fury upon me. Let me take the guilt and corruption and shame of my people in their place. And the Father does it at the cross because the Son is passionate for the glory of God and God's passionate for His own glory. And the Son loves His people and the Father loves His people. And He pours out His wrath on His Son and blots His Son out such that when Jesus pays it in full, no more remaining and breaks through the sentence of sin being eternal death and ascends to the Father's right hand and he lets the mantle of his cape fall and shows the Father the scars of his own warfare on behalf of his people and the way he was blotted out on their behalf that when the Father looks at you, son or daughter, in the midst of great sin, he looks at you through the advocacy of his son and he accepts his work on your behalf and he views you as forgiven and as righteous and as righteous and he accepts you anew and the son is doing that all the time for you there's never a moment when he's not doing that and that is incredible news so how do you respond in great sin when you see it like maybe the cumulative effect of years of besetting sin or maybe like some big, egregious, notorious something. Do you see Jesus be your advocate? That's the gospel. Do you run to Jesus or do you run away from Jesus? Why would we run to such an advocate for great sinners like us? And this is a good news that we can believe in and our lives can be shaped by. It might be the case. Amen. Let's stand.